From New York City, this is Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics near and far from personal finance. Any questions or comments, I can be reached at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. Well, we sit here right around Thanksgiving, the latter part of the year. The market's at 36,000. People are worried about a whole host of things. It's an interesting time in the market. So I thought the person to bring back for this conversation was senior investment strategist at Bernstein, Roosevelt Bowman. Roosevelt, thanks for joining. Thank you, Mark. It's always great to join. Now, you are a repeat guest, but for those who haven't heard our earlier discussions, Roosevelt, before coming to Bernstein, actually, at Bernstein earlier in your career, too, you had a stint at the New York Fed in between. So you see the world from a um, very market, economic, and quantitative perspective, right? That is correct, good sir. When you see all, right, all so, those PhD economists, you learn a lot. So Yeah, I would think. So if you look at the market today, the Dow is at, let's call it 36,000. I know it's a little under. The 10 years at 1.6. The, the question I think I get from clients, and, and, and they, they probably give me 10 reasons, but I'm curious from where you sit. Are there things that worry you today, or do you sit there and say, nope, not worried? Yeah, that's a good question, Mark. I mean, I think I'm less worried than I was before. So I would say my big worry was that the Fed was going to be too slow and that the party would kind of go on too long, that rates would be too low for too long, and that you'd have kind of the excesses that you expect to build up on both household balance sheets, but also corporate balance sheets and, and hedge funds as well. And then we're you know in a, in a bad situation where the Fed has to catch up, tighten quickly, and you have a sharper market decline. That I think there's a lower probability because inflation has proved to be stickier in terms of the level and it's starting to influence inflation expectations. So I actually think the Fed's starting earlier rather than later in terms of removing some of this extraordinary accommodation is a big positive. Now, does that mean returns for stocks and bonds are are lower over the near term? I think it most certainly does. But I think it lowers the probability of that big drop because the Fed is way behind the curve. I think that is a lot less likely now. What would you say to someone who says, I hear you, Roosevelt, but they're already too late. The party's already gone on too long. Would you say, you know, how do you, how would you argue that? Yeah. So I would argue that, that, you know, when I look at the indicators of excess, right, I'm seeing some of them from a headline standpoint, but not as many when you look under the hood. So I mean by that is when you look at the housing market and kind of who's getting credit and the loan to value, I don't see a lot of scary metrics there. When I look at household savings rate, it's still about 2% above the 20-year average. So, you know, during times when you would say, you know what, people are spending too much, they're borrowing too much, I would expect a lot of those indicators to be going the other direction where, you know, households are running down savings. They're not able to withstand, you know, an unexpected expense. But when you look at most of the surveys, if anything, households across all income levels are better prepared to withstand an unexpected expense. They are still saving at a rate that's above the 20-year average. That doesn't quite speak to me as you know, extreme excess that's super vulnerable to a, a big market pullback. You, know, you talked about real estate and loan to value. Maybe for some of the listeners who, who don't know all these metrics, I guess the point would be you don't see excess like prior to the great financial crisis in 2008, where you'd sit there and say, 
people can afford the houses they're in they're they're the loans being written are appropriate these people can afford the houses you know it's it's not someone making fifty thousand dollars buying a three million dollar home that exactly. that type of stuff so that type so i should have, that type of stuff isn't happening even though broadly speaking real estate is up exactly exactly so what so of- what's pushing real estate higher if it's not um some of those loose lending that standards mm-hmm. so I would say overall, a couple of things. One, because rates have been so low, when you look at kind of mortgage affordability, yeah, it's it's still really attractive for a lot of uh, consumers and home buyers. The other part too is we've we've had low inventory. There's been underbuilding, so you have demand, you know, outpacing supply, and that's helped kind of drive up prices. And without a doubt, you know, equity markets bouncing back so quickly, and some of that also the the noticeable government stimulus have all kind of helped support that market. So I would say that it's been more from the income and portfolio appreciation side rather than, you know, borrowing that's outside of uh, one's means. But it's important to note, we, people look at the price of their home or they look at real estate going up, but you made this notion of um, household affordability, which is that the, the interest rate component is so critical here, right? It's, it's exactly. if interest rates are, if you're buying, if your mortgage is 3%, and you want to buy it, just making up a number, a million dollar home. And you say, that's going to cost me X a month. If interest rates go to eight, I know that's a high number. Or, or mortgage rates go to eight. And again, I know that's a high number. You may not be able to afford that home anymore, right? It's still right. a million dollar home, but you can't afford it. And, and that pulls prices down, right? Because people can't afford as much. So the interest exactly. rate component is a huge factor in this whole equation. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, that does tie right back to what we talked a little bit about the top in terms of, Fed policy and the Fed likely, you know, ending the bond purchase program uh, next summer and then raising rates shortly after that, you know, those, those interest rate increases are going to directly influence uh, mortgage rates and, and kind of push back on some of that affordability, which does, you know, take the, the housing market off the boil somewhat. Now, not to make this about the housing market, so I want to pivot. You, you talked about supply demand in the housing market. Supply demand imbalances, supply chain, these are all buzzwords that I'm sure are coming across in all of your discussions and all your conversations with clients and investors. How are you thinking about the supply chain and maybe even more broadly, supply demand balances or imbalances today? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in terms of the supply chain, I think it's straightforward. Sometimes people don't like hearing this, but it's the truth the virus is influencing and impacting supply chains. You simply don't have, in a lot of cases, the manpower to get goods from point A to point B. And that's really kind of mucking up the entire supply chain. So to the extent that we have or can get the virus under better control, then you really do alleviate some of those crunches. You are starting to see that happen already, though. When we look at kind of chip makers uh, for for cars, you're starting to see the amount of chips produced going back up again. So while it's still an important issue and it's kind of lingering with us longer than probably all of us anticipated, I I do think we're getting more, we're getting closer to the other side where their supply chain disruptions won't be as large. And I think to the extent that they remain, you're going to see technological responses to that. You've already seen that for certain companies. You look at a, a firm like Walmart, you don't think of that as a really innovative company, but they're using AI and machine learning to kind of improve their supply chain, to make more with what they have, recognizing they may not be able to acquire the same amount of materials that they normally can. So 
to the extent that some of these disruptions last long-term or really that the supply chain is quote unquote broken, I think you will see responses from companies that are more innovative and creative than just saying, you know what, we'll just produce it onshore and the prices will be higher and push the prices to the consumer. I think they're going to use technology and, and in particular machine learning, AI, data science to figure out how to be more efficient with what they have. I would have to assume you're going to agree with this. The fact that the supply chain has had challenges, largely due to the pandemic, at a period of time where people's balance sheets look pretty good, whether that's because of government stimulus checks or asset mm-hmm. prices going up or income, whatever, right? So you have people with the ability and large demand to spend. And largely that spending is on what I would describe as stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In an environment where the ability to produce and move stuff, the supply chain is impaired, cre- I think creates a dramatic imbalance. And, and then I guess the, the question I would ask you is, if you agree with me there, how much of that is, is the phenomenon in the inflation number, not other things that people worry about regarding inflation? Right. I think I do agree with you. I think a good portion of it is that. And that's why the Fed was reticent in terms of responding initially, right? So I think the Fed looked at it and said, what's driving inflation higher from the demand side? It's people being sick of being in their homes, the reopening, getting out, spending money on experiences, big ticket items. And then the other part, those supply chain disruptions. They saw that as temporary, transitory, if you will, the, the buzzword of the of the year in terms of inflation. I think why they're concerned now is that if that feeds into inflation expectations and those consumers say, you know what, this, whatever, I, the stuff that I'm buying costs more now, and I think it's going to cost even more in the future, I'm going to buy less stuff. Now you're hitting consumption, you know, as you know, Mark, 70% of the US economy. And I think that's why the Fed is concerned about with inflation expectations kind of ticking higher does that negatively influence people's desire to consume going forward and lower potential growth? That's what they want to say. Let's let's try to arrest this before it becomes a, a bigger issue. You've mentioned this Fed a few times. I would be remiss to not ask what you think about Jerome Powell being renamed as Fed president and mm-hmm. Brainerd as, as vice chair. Does that impact your outlook in any way or the market outlook? I, I do. It does some. I, it's more on the margin. I mean, I think that obviously if, if the chair was replaced, it would have been, you know, a bigger change. Although I, I think that the read on Brainerd being a constant, extremely dovish member, you know, even as the, the Fed chair would have been the wrong one. So the market reaction initially would have been, you know, rates down, probably equities slightly up and the dollar down, and it would have been a big reaction. But I think that would have been the wrong one. I think people would have assumed incorrectly that she would, that she is this permanent dove. When you look back at other times when the economy has been stronger and there was a clearer picture, she's absolutely been hawkish. So I think there's more flexibility to her outlook on policy. I think her as the vice chair does kind of two things for the Fed going forward. Certainly, I think it it does expand their their purview, whether people agree with that or not, into more of kind of these government initiatives that we're seeing not only here in the U.S., but abroad as well in terms of climate, right? And like, how does the Fed potentially influence that? I would argue Fed policy is not well equipped to do that, but it's a different discussion for a different time. I do think the other big advantage of having her elevated to that role is she has a great background in international economics, 
So to the extent that we have dislocations in the foreign exchange market that bleed into broader risk appetite and, and accelerate equity market declines, like we saw in 2008, like we saw briefly in 2020, she's better at short-circuiting those because she has such a great amount of experience in international trade and foreign exchange. So I think that's a big benefit having her as vice chair. Um, one of your, I don't know, areas of interest is currency and exchanges. You've referenced that and you just referenced that in terms of global policy and, and Brainerd. Um, I don't want to go down a rat hole here into the currency markets because I think it's, it's technical and not all my clients are, are, are that interested in it. But I, but I should ask you, right, if, if you've got a dollar today and you travel to to Europe, you get 89 cents back. You go to Canada, you get a dollar 27 for your dollar. You get a dollar 27 Canadian. In very broad terms, given all that you've talked about with the Fed and policy and economics and the globe, is do you think we're in for dollar strengthening, dollar weakening, dollar weak, weakening, or zero sum game? I think over the short term, and I, I kind of consider that you know, one to three months, I think we see more dollar strength, both against uh, developed and emerging market currencies for similar, but a little bit different reasons. I think against developed currencies, some of the ones you mentioned, Euro, CAD, Australia, you know, British pound, yen, it's really a matter of the Fed likely, less so against Bank of Canada, but the others, the Fed moving more quickly towards normalizing policy, towards lifting rates, stopping the bond buying program, more so than the European Central Bank or the Bank of Japan, or even you know, the Bank of England. So I think that's where you can see some dollar strength, relative interest rate differentials favoring the dollar and pushing it higher. I think it's against emerging markets, the dollar has some upside as well. I, I think the reason for that is, is straightforward is that we're, we're likely to be moving into a period of decelerating US and global growth. Typically that's favorable for the dollar. You know, Reduce risk appetite, lower or at least decelerating global growth now, that's favorable for the dollar. The other part, too, I would say is that inflation adjusted yields in the U.S. have not quite caught up to the, the inflation being higher than anticipated for longer than originally thought. And so I think that there's some room for inflation adjusted yields to move higher. That's typically a, a positive factor for dollar strength against emerging market currencies. And for the people who are less technical, your advice is to travel overseas in the coming three months. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Your dollar is going to do pretty well, no matter where you go for the most part. So yes. Um, I asked you in the beginning about what worries you, and then we, we went off topic. Um, one of the things I want to go back to that, right? Because I, I, mm -hmm. I think it, 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 to be a thoughtful money manager, you got to stay up at night worried about what you do and don't know. Um, one of the things that worries people are broadly speaking, valuation in the market. Some people will just say on absolute basis, the market's at 36,000. Other people will talk about PE ratios. Um, one of the ones that comes up a bunch is the really high growth stocks, you know, trading at ridiculous multiples, Rivian IPOs, making a hundred cars at, you know, a bigger market cap than Ford. Um, does, so are there parts of this market or is the entire market 1999? Or, or are you like, no, that's, that's just not accurate. But how, how do you think about that? Because it, it's hard to not notice some of, those, some of those dislocations. Oh, absolutely. And I do think you have to say parts of the market, you know, I don't know if it's maybe not 1999, but parts of it, seriously, you cannot square the valuations and you don't want to be there. And I, I do think this speaks to the, the ample liquidity, not only in the US, but globally and kind of driving some of these, you know, nosebleed and insane valuations. And I do think there are certainly pockets of vulnerability that just don't make sense. And you want to be smart in terms of how you have exposure. So I don't think it's 
I think there's certain themes that are just here to stay and you want to be smart about the exposure. So I mean by that is that, you know, you look at something like electronic vehicles and, and you and I have talked about this before, Mark, it reminds, reminds us a lot of what airplanes were when they first there. Everybody was going to win. Everybody produced an airplane was going to make you millions of dollars. They obviously can't all win. Same thing with electronic vehicles. They can't all win. They're all priced as dominant market share companies right now. So, you know, I mean, there's two choices there. You can either say, well, I'm going to be a lot more selective and pick the winner. That carries a, a fair amount of risk. Or you can say, you know what, how can I get exposure to this theme, but not necessarily by the car maker? You know, by an enabler, like a company like Aptiv that's producing the software, uh, both from an energy consumption standpoint and an improved security standpoint. You know, that's a better way of getting exposure and not having to pay the nosebleed prices, but also not missing out on this transformative theme. You know, I think it's being creative and, and not having a, an either or approach and being, you know, terribly, you know, not being too dogmatic about it. So perfect segue, because the the large part of this discussion was what worries you and and then you sort of pivot to that too here are some things that i'm excited about where i can get exposure to some phenomenons if i if i zoom that out cross asset classes stocks bonds commodities the hedge funds whatever um what gets you excited as an investor today what do you think is opportunistic what are you like i, I want to put money there there's an interesting return on my capital yeah absolutely so i think there's a couple areas that i really like over the short term I think all of the speculation that's going on about the path of Fed policy is that's the healthy debate that's going on within those walls. So I see higher interest rate and you know, you know, equity market volatility over the near term. I, you know, you like strategies that lean into that, like hedge funds, where it's not as easy, smooth sailing. You don't have tremendous government and monetary stimulus at your back. It, it isn't kind of straightforward markets. I think we're moving away from that. We're moving to more volatile times because I think this is the period where you experience volatility, where the Fed is trying to figure out how fast they go and how far they go. It's not as much once they start, that'll be well telegraphed. And, and I think market volatility will actually be lower than this is the period where volatility is higher. Hedge funds, I think, are attractive in that, in that kind of environment. I think longer term, you know, despite the fact that, you know, as the interest rates go up, you're going to have the headwinds for kind of higher growth or technology stocks, you know, being involved and being invested in these, some of these transformative themes, you know, we talked about electronic vehicles before digital twins, I think is something fascinating. What that means is just coming up with a software model for whatever good you're trying to produce. So you think about this with cars, right? There's tremendous savings here. So, you know, the old way of like, well, we're building a car, we're trying to figure out if these improvement works. You're building it, and then maybe you're crashing it into the wall. We've all seen these commercials, right? Well, what if you can make a digital twin, which is a software-rendered model that is the car, and you can figure out how it works, and it's pretty accurate, and then you're not slamming steel into wall and wasting all those materials. So I think themes like that are extremely exciting, and I acknowledge that as interest rates go up, that's typically not a great time for growthy, technology-focused portfolios. But number one, I don't think interest rates are going up that much. And number two, for the long-term opportunity, I think you have to be there because the world is transforming and we live in such an interesting time where there is juxtaposition and that means there's real opportunity. So what I mean by that is that, you know, you have firms, you know, you pick finance, our industry, you have firms that are using artificial intelligence like we are, improving their trading in certain ways using data science. And then I know of folks that write down their trades in notebooks, right? And 
that kind of juxtaposition is not going to last forever. One way is far more efficient than the other. What that means for us as investors is that having that spread means, wow, there are people that are still behind these trends. That means some of these trends and companies are undervalued. Let me invest in them. So that's what gets me really excited from a longer term opportunity standpoint, even acknowledging that, you know what, interest rates moving higher over the short term is somewhat of a headwind for those types of growth and technology focused portfolios. Um, you, you talked about hedge funds. I don't know if I'm going to stretch your logic here too far. If I do yell at me, or don't yell, just mention <laughs> it. Um, does that mean also I, you might like more concentrated stock portfolios? I mean, I'm not suggesting a five stock portfolio, but, but 20, 30 names, not, you know, 500 in the S&P 500, where, where if you think we're more volatile, we're in a more winner loser environment, that, that more concentrated, more specific positions are the way to play this market? Or, or am I stretching that too far from the hedge fund story? No, I, I think you're right about that. And I think that, you know, the, the other big part of that too, is that it's really, again, tied to kind of that volatility. If you have the kind of smooth sailing you know, every risk asset on the planet is going up, you know, a year like 2019, not as much fun to be, you know, an active stock picker, security selector, but with increased volatility and more uncertainty, not only about Fed policy, but this exogenous variable of the, the virus, I think that does lend more to stock picking concentrated positions, having a higher conviction and not just broad index exposure. But I think we got to be careful about trend chasing too, right? There are some high profile, ultra growth portfolios out there where managers are down 15, 20% this year in an environment where the S&P is up 20%, right? So as much as concentration and, and sector selection is important, we, we can't throw diversification out here, right? Because if you get right. caught chasing with too much of your assets, um, you just you're in for bigger swings, right? I mean, you know, this is a year where a reasonably balanced portfolio in the U.S. equity market is up, you know, twenty percent, give or take, yep. right? And you want to be up more than that. But if you got caught chasing the trends of twenty twenty, you could be down in an equity portfolio this year while the S and P's up. I mean, that's a big disparity. So I think there is underlying volatility. Or dispersion that you know not everyone's feeling, but if you if you if you have one of those funds, you're really feeling it today. Yeah, I it's a it's a it's a really great point, Mark, because we saw this both on the growth and value side over the past eighteen months. You know, last spring, everybody said, "Up, oh, I don't need any value stocks. We're all going to be doing Zoom forever. We're never going to see anyone again." I only I only want those stocks that are tied to those themes. And then you fast forward to the fall and you have vaccines come in with efficacy rates that are much higher than expected. Oops, people are actually going back to gyms and restaurants, things of that sort, banks, energy companies, all doing really well. And then that was the extrapolation going forward, right? Value is back. It's now it's value's time. Everyone load up on value. Well, guess what? You know what? Value and growth, and we've talked about this before in, in my eyes, looking at the data over the last five years, it's very much an economic outperformance and interest rate trade. Interest rates fell starting uh, in the spring of, of this year and economic outperformance waned. All of a sudden, growth grabbed the baton back from value and outperformed. And all, everyone that was positioned for a two, three-year value run, they were way off sides. They underperformed that diversified portfolio that had some of both. So I, I totally agree with you. I think it's hubris to make 
extrapolations about the new world that we're living in when we're still trying to understand what the equilibrium is with the virus. And, and I'll, I'll, we'll end with this. There are flavors, right? The Russell 1000 value going into today, which is the day before Thanksgiving is up 23%. The Russell 1000 growth is up 27%. I mean, those are really big numbers and one's leading the other, but I think people would be happy on either side of that equation. You can find pockets of what we would just call like the ultra growth market that aren't up 27 plus, they're down 20. Right, right. right. So, 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 you know, you, you get into these, well, value, growth, large cap, small cap, but in this world of, of like what I would almost describe as hidden volatility, you could find a basket of stocks that you loved in 2020 that you would feel terrible owning today, even though Absolutely. the growth index up 26, seven, it, that is a really, I think, undercovered, interesting story out there today. And I, and I would suspect that will continue in 2022, whether it's oil prices or it's ultra growth or it's financials. I think there's going to be these um, thematic things that if you're swinging too hard for and you're chasing could get ugly, unless I, you know, you may have a totally different view, but I, I think that's something investors need to be thoughtful about. No, I agree with you. And I think when I was mentioning kind of those burgeoning themes, it's a portion of your allocation, right? It's not right. It's not going whole hog. It's, hey, this is an exciting idea and a good addition to my base diverse portfolio. This makes sense. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Going, I think, again, the forecasts and extrapolations about this style is going to work over some period of time or this certain theme. And let me put all of my money in that. It's, uh, that's, that is, that's a recipe for a lot more volatility than the person probably bargained for. Right. And this happens in all asset classes. I mean, you look at emerging markets, right? And think about China. Emerging markets last year are up 15%. N nice year, right? China's up 25, even better year. People say, well, it's all about China. Emerging markets are, you know, are still flat to positive this year and China's down double digits. So, right. you know, it, it, it tells you that diversified is, is, is good. Having, um, you know, selective positions is good. Over betting on certain things that you think are going to continue in the next six to 12 months can get you hurt. And, and yeah. the balance of that, I think, is what's really the tricky part about the work you do. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Roosevelt, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. We went a little longer than I anticipated. So hopefully we have been um, put everyone to sleep. If we have, you can listen to this night in, night out and go to bed with it every night as you come up to your holiday angst. <laughs> So, Roosevelt, thanks again for the time. Mark, it's always a pleasure, man. I appreciate it. To our listeners, feel free to email me at mark.penzner at bernstein.com. Or as I said, call me at 212-969-6655. Any questions on this podcast or any other related topics, you can get to me or we can get to Roosevelt and pick his brain. Make sure to like us or review this podcast wherever you listen to it. Happy holidays. We'll talk to you in December. Until next time.